0: Church, let's open to Genesis chapter 18 this morning. While you're turning there, I wanna tell you a story. We'll start off with a story this morning. There was once a man in his mid-40s who was quite successful. He had a strong family life. Uh, He was doing well at work, made the decision to phase away from his job into a new business he was starting, and that was going well also, and now the time had come that he could quit his job entirely and focus on his business, which was doing well but he hadn't always been successful in fact as a student in school he hadn't done very well at all Uh, he fell into drug culture when he was in school Uh, grew up in a rural area where meth was the drug of choice and he fell into a deep addiction to meth which took him years to get out of Uh, did not finish high school it was in his mid-20s that he was completely at rock bottom in terms of life, in terms of the state of his spirit in every way you could imagine, when he learned that Jesus offers a forgiving hand to sinners and brings sinners to himself. And in desperation, he put himself at the feet of Jesus and said, change me, make me new. Uh, And he found that Jesus did. The spirit indwelled his heart, his heart changed. He found in his church a strong network of support, good preaching, good counseling that gave him discipline and and lifted him out of the pit that he was in such that he learned self-discipline and self-control and through those things was able to earn a GED and then go to college and then become successful and do all sorts of great things that benefited him because he now had discipline and self-control. So he considered the past completely behind him, that he was a new person. Well, now here he is in his mid-40s. He's successful. Uh, His business is starting to bud, starting to bloom, and he's found a really good prospective client on the other side of the country, also in a rural area, and that client's invited him to visit his country home. So he flies out there, other side of the country, doesn't know anyone out there, is uh, walking around the town that feels a lot like his rural hometown, uh, goes and visits the client, really hopeful, and the meeting goes okay, but... Not amazing, And he was open for amazing. So he leaves a little disappointed, but he can't be too down on himself. And he's walking down the street in this rural town and realizes there's a drug culture in this town too and looks across the street and sees two men making what he can tell is a drug deal because of his past. And he looks a little more closely and realizes that it's a meth deal. And all of the sudden, desire that had been kept at bay in his heart for 20 years reignited. There he was, he knew no one around him. And the man he had become, it's like that man went away. And when he tells the story now, he's in disbelief at what he did next. He says, I, I walked across the street, found the dealer, asked him if he had any more, he did. I bought a week's worth, went back to my hotel room and went on a complete bender. What happened? How did desires that he hadn't experienced at all for 10 years, not that intensely for 20 years, suddenly come back in his heart? Well, it's a pattern that we sinners know well. When you are alone without accountability, all of a sudden desires that maybe you didn't even realize you had come back. All of a sudden you find out what your true desires are when you're away from your accountability, away from those you know, and no one would know what you have done. The proverbs put it this way in Proverbs 19:1 Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire and he breaks out against all sound judgment. This is the temptation we face when we're alone. Some people say it a little differently, you are who you are when no one is looking. Uh, when no one is around, the real desires come out. But the Lord does not leave us without help in those situations. When we are alone, And we sense no accountability and all of a sudden the desires are strong. Lord gives us help there. Lord gives us great help there. Not only is his spirit dwelling in us to move us the right direction, but so many stories in his word can help us to walk in holiness in those moments. The story we're going to look at today is one of them. It not only gives us strength in those tempting, lonely, unaccountable situations, it also helps us prepare for another situation that a lot of us don't realize is coming. Turn with me to Genesis 18. We're going to read the first two paragraphs. We're not going to read the whole story. These little scenes are part of a broader story in these two chapters. We'll just focus on the first two paragraphs, really focusing on the second, but we'll read the first two. So Genesis 18, verses 1 through 15. Here's what the Lord says. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. And when he saw them, he ran to the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the earth, and he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree, while I bring just a morsel of bread that you might refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you've said, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and he said, quick, three says of flying flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and he gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he'd prepared and he set it before him. And they stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where's Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. And now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah will have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. The words of the Lord. We have here a small picture of coming judgment. And through it, God is strengthening those of us who often find ourselves in tempted and alone situations, and he is preparing all of us to face judgment that is to come so that we may be ready when it does come. There are several points in these two chapters. We're gonna treat them one at a time, one sermon per point. That, day, that way when we're out here in the sun, there aren't many points we've got to try to keep up with. Uh, that way things can be as easy to follow as we can. Just one point in this sermon from this one aspect of the story, we'll look at another one next week. That point this week comes from God's interaction with Sarah, which is again, a picture of judgment that is coming. Let me walk you through the story. These three men come and they appear before Abraham. Now we know that it's the Lord that's one of them. And later we'll find out that the other two are angels but it says in verses 1 and 2 that when Abraham looks up, he just sees three men. So if you've got any visions of wings or halos or anything anything magical or mystical like that, no, Abraham just sees men walking. And he thinks that they are human visitors because that's the form that they have taken right now. So thinking he's got some human visitors he plays host and he says oh just as they did in that day let me set just a little morsel of bread before you and they say yes and he goes and hastily prepares a gigantic feast for them this morsel that he offers them is really a great feast he kills the calf he puts the calf before them they're sitting under the tree and they're talking And that's when things begin to get interesting. Now, there's much meaning in Abram's hospitality, which we'll address in a different sermon. But we'll look at the conversation today. These three men who are strangers out of nowhere say, where's Sarah, your wife? And that may sound odd. That may sound strange. Or maybe it doesn't. If it doesn't sound weird to you, think of it this way. Uh, Imagine that you are in your home and either someone you live with is sitting with you and you're talking to them, or if you live alone, then you have a friend over. And imagine who it is who is sitting with you and what their name is. And you hear a knock at your door. And so you go and answer your door, and there's a stranger at the door uh, who turns out to be a new neighbor, very friendly. You're chatting it up. You have a good time. But this person can't see inside to know that you have anyone else in the house. They, for all they know, you're alone and live alone. No one else is there. And then whatever the name is of the person who is with you in the house, that person says to you, hey, where is, and says their name, your whatever, wife, husband, child, friend. Then suddenly you've got one question. How much Facebook snooping did you do on me before you came over? Right? Like, how do you know that I have a wife named this, or that I have a son named this, or that I have a friend? Like, you're a total stranger. How did you know that much about me? That's kind of the strangeness of what these men say here, too. They're strangers. They haven't supposedly met Sarah yet. Now, it could be that Abraham's already talked about Sarah, and it's just not in the story, but it comes out a little strange. And we get this sense that these men know a little more than your average stranger knows. And maybe they're not men after all. Maybe they're something else. That part of the story also serves another purpose. It tells us where everybody is. Now we know Abraham and the three men are under the tree. And Sarah is out of view in the tent. Because he says she is over there in the tent. And they can't see where she is. Well, then we learn again that it is the Lord who is speaking and the Lord says to him, that promise we have talked about before, which hinges on Abraham and Sarah having a son. He says, I'm gonna come back next year, and when I do, she will have a son in her arms. In the next verse, in verse 11, we learn again why that is unbelievable. They're advanced in years, and for the first time, we learn that the way of women has ceased to be with Sarah. In other words, she's past childbearing years. So they never had a child when she was in childbearing years. Now she's past them. It's very unbelievable that she would have a son next year. And so verse 12 says some very important things. It says that Sarah, in response to this, laughed. She chuckled at herself. And it says very pointedly, she laughed to herself, All right? So, this isn't a loud cackle in front of everybody, some big villainous laugh. This is just a little, you know, that no one who wasn't right next to her could see. Maybe no visual and no audio at all, just laughing to herself. And she says, basically, yeah, right, that's, that's not gonna happen. But she also says that to herself. Maybe she thinks it in her heart. Maybe she kind of mutters it under her breath. But we have enough now to know that, The men outside couldn't have seen or heard what she did, right? She's hidden back there in the tent. She is behind them and the Lord. So they have their back turned to her. She only laughs to herself and she only speaks to herself. So this is a private moment where she's on her own. She's kind of a wallflower in the situation. She can hear them. They can't really hear her. And so she's kind of, you know, no one's watching her. She's not very accountable in the situation. And then the strangest thing happens in verse 13. The Lord, who had his back to her as she laughed to herself, said to Abram, said to Abraham, "Why did Sarah laugh? Why did she say, uh, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old?" You catch that? He can't see her, presumably she's behind him. She's out of sight. She laughs to herself. She says it to herself. And God says, why did she do that? I saw that. And now we learn these visitors are definitely more than just people. And so Sarah becomes afraid. She's had this moment where she thought she was unaccountable. She thought nobody was watching. And the Lord reveals, oh, actually, I saw that. Actually, I read your heart, Sarah. Actually, I saw what you did. And I see everything. And I watch everything that you do. And so she becomes afraid. And her reaction is to deny it and say, no, 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 I didn't do it. And the Lord ends the story with these simple words that almost sound awkward, but make the point so bitingly. He says, no, but you did laugh. So he just gives her this moment where he just basically does this to her, just, and then he's out. And she's just startled and terrified, and that is the end of the story. She thought she was alone, but God was watching her, and God read her heart, and she trembled as God called her to give an account. This is a picture of what will happen to every soul on planet Earth. Everyone here in this field, on the balcony, and in the house behind me today will happen to each one of us one day. That's just a little picture of it. We will go before God who will reveal I was watching when you thought you were alone. And he will ask for an account as he did from her. He said, why did Sarah do this? No, you definitely did this. I saw it. We will have to give an answer and then he will bring every deed we have done into judgment. That is the picture that we are getting from this. This is just a little microscopic picture Of the exposed judgment we will all one day face as we go before the Lord, given to us to help prepare us for that day. So, you might say that what this story is doing is bringing to life what is taught elsewhere. We can see it play out and get a picture of what is taught elsewhere. Uh, Now, I'll back up here and just give you a a little bit of kind of uh, help interpreting stories in the Bible here. When you are reading a story in the Bible and you think to yourself, okay, I think I understand the point. I think I understand what this story is trying to say. There's a two-part test that you can do to ask yourself, okay, am I making this up or can I believe confidently that this story says what I think it says? You just got to ask two questions. One... Uh, is the author of the story putting details in here that point me to this? Like, in other words, is the author intentionally trying to say through the details and the storytelling what I am seeing here? And two, is what I'm seeing clearly taught somewhere else in the Bible, right? Is it definitely in here in the details? And is it clear somewhere else in the scriptures? That's because the Bible says what it says on purpose, And it says what it says in different ways in different parts of the scripture. You might see something stated very clearly, make no mistake, this is clear in one part of the scripture. And then somewhere else, you'll see it maybe in the Psalms or the prophets, not as clear, but with more impactful and lively imagery to speak to the heart a little more, and then, in a story, you might see the same truth play out in the story, and it's less clear there, but it's more impactful to the heart. All of these combine to speak to the mind, the heart, the body, all together uh, in the different ways that the Scripture speaks. So just look for it taught more clearly somewhere else in the Scripture to confirm. So first question then is what i'm seeing definitely in here as you look at the story you can see how it's set up that god couldn't have seen abraham you can or sorry that god couldn't have seen sarah that she was behind him that she was in the tent under the shade of the tent that she spoke to herself like all these details that say he shouldn't have been able to hear what she did and then he turns around and says hey I saw that. And he leaves it there as if that's the point of it. So you can, you can be pretty confident that the author is pointing us that direction. And then secondly, we ask, is that taught clearly elsewhere? Is that picture of, whoa, God is watching what happens in secret and will one day call for an account from us? Is that taught elsewhere in scripture? I'm gonna read three different scriptures where that's taught plainly and clearly to make that point. The first one we read earlier today. Uh, Paul chose it intentionally because it goes well with this story. It's Psalm 11, verse 4. It's even in your handouts early on under the confession time. It says, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. That's far away, right, in heaven. But his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of man. So God may be far away in his temple in heaven. His spirit is here, but he's on his throne in heaven in his temple but his eyelids see all of us. His eyelids test the children of man. He is watching and even recording what we are doing for good or for evil. Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13 say this. "'For the word of God,' and that is Jesus himself, "'is living and active, "'sharper than any two-edged sword, "'piercing the division of soul and of spirits, "'of joints and of marrow,' and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So it is teaching that Jesus Christ sees all, not only what we do, but it can even discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. There was, a, uh, there was a viral thing that went around on the internet a few months ago about how some people, about 90% of people, have an inner monologue, like a voice that's going in their head, and about 10% of people don't. It caused a big stir. Maybe you remember it going around. Basically, some of us talk to ourselves in our minds, and about 10% of us don't. That's what it said, at least. I don't know if it's true or not. But what this says here, what that text says is that if you talk to yourself in your mind, the Lord can hear that voice in your head. And even if you don't think in an audible voice in your mind, the intentions of your heart, the things you intend to do, God is aware of every single one of them. This is deeper than reading minds. He can read the heart and know what it is that we are seeking after, even when we can't tell what it is that we are seeking after. It goes on to say that all of us are exposed before him. He can see all of us and that we will one day give an account for it all. The same way that he asked Abraham, why did Sarah do this? One day we will give an account and he will ask questions like, what did you do that one time when you were alone? What did you want in that moment? What did you think would happen? Difficult questions that we will have to give truthful answers to because he knows all the answers about our darkest, most private, and most secret moments. And finally, Ecclesiastes 12 says, "'The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil.'" So, why should we live in wonder and obedience before God? Because he is going to bring every secret thing we ever do, whether good or evil, into judgment one day. You combine this together and you see that God sees all we do, even in secret. God reads the thoughts and intentions of our hearts And one day he will call each of us to give an account for all we have done and then he will bring every deed into judgment. That is the same thing he did to Sarah, right? In just that moment, he let her know that he saw what she was doing and he read the laughter in her heart and the words in her heart. He called for an account and she became afraid and trembled before him because she had done wrong. This is then a small picture of what we will all face one day. And the fear that we see Sarah have there as she grasps for some kind of excuse and says, no, 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 I, I didn't do that. That is the sort of fear that we will all experience as we stand before the great throne of God and give an account for every last thing that we have done in secret. This is a little different for someone who trusts in Jesus for forgiveness versus someone who does not trust in Jesus for forgiveness. Uh, we've been through the story from her eyes what happened there uh, let me give the best account I can from the scriptures of what would happen to us when that day comes of judgment before God both for someone whose trust and faith is in Christ and then for someone whose trust and faith is not there most of us gathered here have expressed that we trust Jesus to forgive us for our sins and so that day of coming judgment is less fearful and scary for us uh, it's a little different for us what will happen the best picture we've got is standing before the great throne of God, which uh, Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6 appears to be taken in a vision before this very place. And he sees there uh, seraphim, which are creatures around the throne, heavenly creatures that have six wings, and they are before the majesty and glory of God. And with two of their wings, they cover their faces And with two more of their wings, they cover their feet. And with only the other two wings do they fly and hover around the throne. And they are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. The earth is filled with his glory. Things like this before this God. And they can't even show their faces or their feet before this God. They shield themselves with their wings before his great glory. Isaiah sees this, he's a righteous man, and he sees this and says, woe to me for I am ruined before God's glory people see sometimes as angels or sometimes God in the scriptures, then they tend to just fall down on their faces when they see it. Because the angels have their wings, the, the heavenly creatures at least, they may not be angels, have their wings to shield them from the glory of God. But we have nothing. Hebrews says we are naked and exposed before the glory of God. So nothing to hide behind, just having to stare the glory of God in the face and then hearing. Okay, let's talk about this day. What did you do? Okay, let's talk about this other day. What did you do on that day? And whether we're on the ground, whether we are weeping through the things that we have done, giving a full and honest account of all of our life's dealings before him. The Christian has much hope in this moment, for in that moment, Jesus is at least proverbially, maybe literally beside us, representing us, with every one of these sins we have committed, saying, Father, I have paid for that. Father, I died and I rose and I paid for that. I paid for every one of this man's sin, every one of this woman's sin. I paid for it all. There's no reason to take a further account of judgment for I paid for it all. So the shield we have then in that moment is Jesus himself protecting us from the righteous judgment of God. And as it's over, our good deeds here in the kingdom will be weighed as well. We will receive credit for all of the good that Jesus did on our behalf. His death will count as payment for all of our sins and we enter into eternal happiness in the presence of Jesus forever. As we stand there weeping over our sin, Jesus would wipe those tears from our eyes and say, no more of those. There, there will be no more of these tears where I am taking you. Come, come and share in my happiness. And that is the end of that. For those of us who place our faith in Jesus for forgiveness... Now, for those of us who do not, who, who are wondering, what is this forgiveness and faith thing you're talking about? Or who have heard the gospel proclaimed and just have not trusted in Jesus for salvation and for forgiveness, it looks very different. They're exposed fully before the Lord with no help, no advocate, having to answer yourself for everything that you have done and having no payment offered for your sins Then at the end of all of this trembling, of all of this fear, of all of this terror before the glory of God, hearing the words from the throne, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. And with no one else to pay for your sins, having to pay for them yourself in all of eternity, in eternal judgment. The picture of that great and terrible day is given to us just in microscopic measure in God's dealings With Sarah that day. And he wants us to be ready for it. Why would he give us a picture of that now to prepare us out of love for us? The same way that a good doctor would say to someone who needs to make lifestyle changes, if you don't make these changes, you will die in three years. They will try to scare that patient into doing what they need to do for, to care for their body. And if the Lord is putting you in fear right now, thinking, I, just, I walk around all day not considering that everything that I do is gonna be taken before the Lord and judgment, that gives you fear. The Lord wants to do that to bless you and to prepare you for this day that is coming. And so I'll spend the rest of this time just just guiding you, how do I deal with that fear? What do I do with that fear in my heart? And this also is different for a Christian versus someone who is not a Christian. Uh, If you are a Christian, you will face the day, you'll face it with Jesus on your side, but it's still a fearsome day, right? Uh, What can you do now to be ready for the day when you must give an account for all you have done? Uh, There are some things you can do. First, might as well... Bring your sins before the Lord now. If you know the day will come when you must bring them, why not tell him about them now? Why not pray to him? Take advantage of these confession of sins times that we have. Take advantage of your own quiet time to say, Lord, I know just what I have done. And you know it all. There is no need to hide it from you. Here is what I have done. God, Just name it and give it to him as I confess this to you, Lord. Uh, the book of First John, the Psalms 32, Psalm, Psalm 51, teach us to confess our sins, even as believers, even though we already have forgiveness from the Lord, to confess our sins to him. Because when we sin against the Lord, we don't forfeit our eternal state in the kingdom, and we don't forfeit the Spirit of God dwelling in our hearts but we do lose the fullness of the Spirit, which is a different thing. We're no longer filled with the Spirit because we've done things that have grieved God's Spirit within us. We lose closeness in our relationship with the Lord. And the way we gain those things back to find fullness of the Spirit, sometimes better ministry, effectiveness, a better relationship with the Lord, better delight in our quiet times, how do we find that? Will we confess our sins to the Lord we turn away from those things. Just say, I am, whatever it is that I am doing in secret that I want no part of, Lord, I want no part of it now. Lord, make me holy and help me to run away from that sin. And then as part of that repentance and turning, doing whatever you have to do to ensure that you don't fall into it again. Uh, Jesus says, if your right hand causes you to sin, chop your right hand off it's a drastic picture of the measures we should be willing to take to keep ourselves from sin those of us who are forgiven and have seen the holiness of god great and drastic measures for some it might mean this for some it may mean that for some it may mean you know for someone for instance who uh, who wrestles and fights gluttony it may be just casting certain foods out of your house and never having them in your house again this way you're never tempted to fall into those particular things I read a study this week that would imply that if its averages are true for us in our church, that a third of us just need to cut ourselves off from the internet based on what we would be looking at. The study said that a third of church-going men are looking at lewd things on the internet. If that's you, what's the drastic step you need to take to walk away from that? Just cut yourself off from the whole thing whether it's the phone or the computer at home or whatever it is cut off the supply suffer the lifestyle change that that would require because your holiness is worth it taking big steps like that to walk away from sin is worth it maybe your sin is against a certain person and your worst nightmare would be confessing it to that person i am doing this sin against you You will limit the power of the temptation if you bring your sin to that person. It's terrifying to do, but it is worth it because it takes so much of the temptation away. That's part of the repentance, right? We confess our sins to the Lord, uh, we turn away from them, and we do whatever we've got to do to make sure we don't fall into them again. This, by the way, is why we have confession of sin times in our services. Uh, As as sinners still, like we may be redeemed, but we are still sinners. We walk through the world, we do things all week and we come back with stains on us, right? Things we have done throughout the week that we shouldn't have done. How do we stay walking in the Spirit? How does this church stay full of the Spirit? How can, you, how can we make sure everyone leaves this worship service just full of the Spirit of God, ready to walk in holiness? We need time to confess our sins to the Lord and to renew our relationship with him, that freshness and newness we need regularly with him. The other thing you can do as a Christian uh, to take from this story is to remember it, for those tempting moments when you are alone. Remember that story I told in the beginning, Uh, that man had not experienced desire for drugs that profoundly in 20 years and hadn't experienced at all for 10 years, but the seed still remains in the heart. And when that desire comes back out, you need in those moments a reminder that there are eyes watching you. You need the memory of stories like this. When you feel alone and you feel unaccountable, that unaccountability brings out the temptation. You need to remember God saying to Sarah, no, I saw you. You did laugh. You need to remember Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 and Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14, that God watches all we do and will call it into judgment. You need those truths in your heart in that moment. Uh, You may need to memorize one of those two texts of scripture. They're just two verses. I'll say them again. Hebrews 4, 12 to 13 and Ecclesiastes 12, 13 to 14. If you take one of those, commit it to memory. If you let whoever you came with drive home, you could have it memorized by the time you're home today, just in the car ride, just a few sentences. Not too difficult to remember. Keep that in your heart so that when you are alone, when you are tempted, you can call that to mind And say to yourself, no creature is hidden from his sight. All are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You need those words in your heart in that moment. So take this story and take the truths from it to guard you in those moments of unaccountable temptation. Finally, what about for those of us that do not trust in Jesus? Uh, Has the thought of going before God put you in fear, I wonder? That isn't fun for us to do, but it is something the Lord wants to prepare you for. Uh, how do you handle that fear right now? I mean, how do you handle knowing that you will one day go before the Lord God with no protection at all, just having to confess all of your sins to them and then having to pay for all of them in judgment and eternity? How do you prepare for that? Does that put fear in your heart? Friend, cast yourself upon the safety of Jesus Christ. There is one who is Lord of the universe who is able to save you. He is the one mighty to save. If you cast yourself on the mercy of a friend or on the mercy of someone on the stage or someone in another car, none of us are able to pay for your sins. We can't do that. But there is one who is Lord of the universe. And though he was sinless, Lord died willingly on a cross to offer payment for all of our sins if we would trust in him if you would cast yourself upon that safety, cling to the safety of that rock that is Jesus Christ, you would, instead of exposure on that day, have an advocate on that day that says, Father, this is my brother. Father, this is my sister. And therefore, your adopted son or daughter in your kingdom. Father, I have paid for all of this person's sin and there is no need to to met out any more judgment for this sin. That is the protection and safety you could have if you would trust in Jesus. And if you do, oh, give him your whole life. Follow him for all of your life. Follow him in baptism. Confess that his ways are good, the ways that you have departed from, and come back to his teaching and the good life that he gives. Let's pray together.